out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Indeed we are. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. I'm with you for the next 60 minutes. As you know, we'd love a special guest this week. It is going to be the turn of babes in Toyland because I recently caught up with the drummer, vocalist, Laurie Barbero to find out more about life, love, poetry, all that kind of groovy stuff. Anyway, after quite a long chat about this and that, as you do, we got down to those early musical influences and I was discussing the glam period of the early 70s with people like Sweet, Slade, T-Rex and Gary Glitter. And um, yes, and after the mention of uh, Sweet especially, this was Laurie's reply. Laurie, it's over to you. Um, th- th- uh, that music for sure, um, to be honest, I don't even know how I found it, but I remember being in my bedroom listening to a radio and I'm, I don't know what radio station I had it, but I remember hearing a gentleman with an accent I'd never heard before because I was in grade school and it ended up being John Peel. So I listened to John Peel. Mm-hmm. I don't know what radio station broadcasted him in the twin cities in the, in the pro- probably seventies, but somebody did. And so I was completely enthralled by him and heard music. I've never ever laid my ears on before and I just loved listening to him because I had that funny accent (laughs) you know and so you know I'd never really met anyone from from England I did never meet him but just listening to him um and then and down the road I did end up meeting him and spending quite 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 a few hours uh with his company so that was pretty wonderful which was a dream come true but just him but I mean even before that my mom and my parents had a big giant uh stereo uh console stereo with the speakers built in it you know a yes big thing and with a with a turntable uh, or, or record players what we called it and uh and you know AMFM radio but my mother would play all of her favorite records which was like um uh let's see the 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 fifth dimension um yes. Sergio Mendez and the Brazil 66 so I was like Brazil 66 I was probably like five or six years old but that was stuff that I remember like it was yesterday just all of these these songs or she probably had it when I was older but we would play um the Hughes Corporation um uh just a lot of soul and funk and R&B and stuff is kind of what I grew up on until I started hearing John Peel and his music well, because I didn't, I didn't get the John Peel thing until much later, which was kind of the um, early '80s. So you, you got it a lot. Maybe, it, yeah, it was probably like the '70s. I wasn't in grade school. I was just thinking, I was young. I was young. I was probably, and it could have even been when I was in New York. I went to high school in New York. Yeah. So it, it could, it probably was because I don't remember exactly mm. when, what year it was. But it was when I was still in school before, when I still lived at my parents' house until I was 17 years old. So it was before that and hearing John Peel. So it's probably a New York station where I went to like ninth, 10th, 11th, 12th grade. And, oh. um, because I, we lived right by the city. So it was probably something that came in through uh, a New York City station. Yeah, well, that's handy because I, I was very influenced. There was like Top of the Pops and the Top 40, which were huge. But there was also my older brother who was seven years um older than me he 
he sort of got really into prog rock and I, I was kind of fascinated with these kind of records that he had in his room. Plus, he'd banned me from listening to them when he'd go into his room. So obviously you do. And you listen to Yes and Genesis and Rick Wakeman and, and Barkley James Harvest and Wishbone Ash. Funny enough, when punk came along, he hated it and just it had nothing to do with it. Um, and, I was, and I was a bit too young for punk, but it was kind of the early 80s when I suddenly kind of was looking for something else. And, and it was John Peel and listening to people like wire and i am the fly and and all those kind of rather bizarre and scratchy sounds that that became you know like i suppose post-punk before the indie world appeared so what was your so you were a little bit older so punk probably and you were in new york so you had that whole experience didn't you i did i was pretty fortunate um my dad got transferred i was born in minneapolis and then ended up coming back and li have lived in my house now that i own for the past 27 years but um going to new york my dad was transferred we live in a little it was called a hamlet um yeah. outside of new york city he took a train into work but on the weekends i went into new york city because where we were living was a one high school town and um i just couldn't deal with that i was i was a city girl so i had to get into that city so i would go into new york city and believe it or not a lot of times i drove or i went with my older i hung out with older guy friends yes. and I got to see um, like Queen and Madison Square Garden. I saw David Bowie at Madison Square Garden. I saw Pink Floyd Animals Tour at Madison Square Garden. This was all in the seventies. Yeah. Uh, so I was pretty, you know, I was like 15, 16, 17, 16, 15 years old when I saw that stuff. Oh, so that's so I was, good. Yeah, I'm pretty lucky. That's the, the only time I'll brag about my age is because I got to see all the good shows. <laughs> that was fantastic. So did you go to things like Max's Kansas City as well as CBGB's? I did go to CBGB's. Um, another, and I did probably go to Max's. I just remember CB's. That was kind of my hang. So mostly, and down on St. Mark's Place, there was just, that's where everybody kind of hung out. It was, it was, a, it was a street with a bunch of stoops and all that and Tompkins Square Park and all that, but everyone kind of hung out where Trash and Vaudeville was. It was just kind of like the cool hipster little street down in the village, down in, you know, the East Village. And that's kind of, and then you went around the corner, walked down a few blocks and there was CBGBs. But, so that was kind of where you'd also hang if there was not really the greatest show going on. Yeah. You just got to hang out and there are little corner bars. I don't remember the names of those, uh, to be honest, because it was so long ago, but. So how did you, I mean, at that stage, New York was quite grim though, wasn't it? I mean, there was, there was, a, you know, everyone seems, you know, I did an interview with a guy called, actually, I can't remember his name though. Um, oh God, he was actually, oh God, he was in the punk band. I think it was called, oh God, my mind's gone blank. I can't even, I haven't even got the book in front of me. In but the 70s? Yeah, a, a black punk band um, called, um, oh. I can't quite I, the, the only, the one that I know was from Washington, D.C. Um, but, and then there's one now in Kansas City, outside of Kansas City called um, Rat, what are they called? Rattler? No, what are they called? Rat, Rattleys? I drink this drink called Rattler, so I know it's yes. like Rattler. It was, it was, a, it was, a, he, I got it here. It was a, it was a band called Pure, Pure Hell. And, um, oh, wow. Yes. And, and I'm going to check them out. 
And he was telling me that he was, you know, in New York at that stage. So there was a lot of kind of hard drugs going on. And and there was people like Sid and Nancy and, and people like that. So it was quite, though it's obviously now we look back and it looks quite nice. But I'm sure if you were there at the time living in those kind of environments, it must have been quite grim because most people died, didn't they, at that time? When, they did. Um, yep. And they, they there actually still are. Um, I, in the Twin Cities, so there the the drug use. I mean, every I'm on this police scanner thing, and you know, besides the stuff that's going on with George Floyd, which has been just horrific here, um, he got killed about ten blocks away from my house, and then the police station that got burned down, uh, that was the precinct of the cops that murdered him. That's my police precinct. So my police precinct is burnt down. And then they burnt down my post office and they burnt down my gas station. They burnt down my bank, everything. And I'm two blocks away from the main road where they just went down and destroyed and looted and burnt and everything. So I'm just pretty much been in the heart of this for almost a month now. It'll yes. be a month on Monday since he was murdered. Um, it's been pretty crazy, but there's a lot um, of the Narcan. They're saving people with Narcan. Um, which is a drug for overdoses, but there are just dozens every day and I just can't get over it. I'm like, where is all this coming from? So it's pretty crazy. I don't know what's going on. Yes, blimey. That is quite grim. Yep. But you got, the good thing is you got to see lots of amazing iconic bands and David Bowie must have done Ziggy Stardust by then and Diamond Dog. So it must have been uh -huh. towards the late 70s when he was still touring, when he done low, the Low album. And I guess he was doing his Berlin period as well. Yeah, this was in, I believe, seven. I, I posted the ticket on my Instagram, uh, this ticket stub that I found. It was either, I think it was 76 or 70, I think it was 76 or 77. Yes. God, so, um, so I was like 16, I think, when I saw him and even with Queen. Um, but yeah, I used to, I used to run around. I was, I was friends with, uh, like Alan Vega, who was in Suicide, and I didn't know that much about Suicide, but he was just like this guy that was pretty cool, and he was really weird, but super friendly, and he became my friend, and then I ended up getting really into like Suicide, and um, Johnny Funders was a really good friend of his that I crossed paths with, and things like that. How so. did you, did you sort of come in touch with the people like a band called Art and that kind of no way? Oh, I never, yeah, I, they were super great. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. Um, I didn't really hang out with them a lot, but I did see Art a lot and that was pretty phenomenal. They were really great and a lot of people don't know about Art, but yes. I mean, very good though. Yeah, because there was that other kind of scene which it gets a little bit more mentioned like bands <laughs> like... Uh, Teenage Jesus and um, yeah, in a DNA that's the one. Yeah, DNA. Yep, yeah, with Arto Lindsay. Yeah, that was super. He was really wild. We we did some shows with him in Europe, um, and Laurie Anderson, and that was pretty wonderful. Wow. But Arto super cool, and Laurie Laurie Anderson is great too. I yeah, yeah, that was that was pretty great. But um, I just did a podcast about. 10 days ago with Lydia Lunch, who I did a spoken word tour with. Yeah, and Lydia. We, yeah, Lydia's great. Her and I are pretty, pretty good friends. And so we, she doesn't have a very good memory. Um, so I told her a lot of stories about us. Yes, I, I could imagine. <laughs> she, 
And so we did a spoken word tour together and just all the, I used to work at a punk rock club. And when I moved back here and uh, I worked there in 1980 and Eight Eyed Spy had played there. And yes. um, it well, was- it's interesting because I did an interview with a guy who was in a band called The Mumps called Christian uh-huh. Pressman. And um, he had an amazing Lydia story as well, but she's probably forgot that as well. So she's, <laughs> there's probably a lot of amusing stories that she probably don't want to be reminded of. Because cause doing this show, because indie pop, I suppose, going into the next decade, the 80s, you know, you had that sort of punk and then post-punk, and then you had sort of like the, the, the sort of moment where people like the Smiths came along. And from 83 to 87, there was a real kind of, in, in this country, you had bands like, you know, the go-betweens, though they're Australian, um, the June Brides, you'd had Orange Juice from Scotland. So there was that kind of jingly, jangly sound. But by 87, a lot of those bands had been together for about five years. And as you probably realise, after five years in a band, things start to get a bit messy, don't they? And then um, just... <laughs> The five-year narrative. Yeah, so the Smiths went. And then, you know, and a lot of bands I've interviewed from that period, they they were just getting, they got tired. But the other thing that happened, you know, like you, you know, like the narrative is that you get together, the early 80s, there was a lot of unemployment. So being in the band was quite good. John Peel picked it up, play your single, you do a John Peel session, that's really good. You get start getting all these gigs around the country because, you know, the UK is a small place, but every town has a, as a you know has an indie night doesn't it or you know like an alternative night as they like to call them you know so Norwich has one you know and everybody had one Leeds, Brighton, Bristol, Glasgow etc and then you know you get the first album things are going good second album tricky um, and if any bands from the UK tour America that just destroys them literally 99% of the bands kind of come back and go and then we broke up but then the other thing is that so basically five years is that narrative but then in about 88, ecstasy came, comes in. Suddenly everybody wants to get into that world that is dance music. And that kind of knocked a lot of those indie bands out, really. I mean, this is a sweeping statement, obviously. But, you you know, suddenly it was a primal scream and stone roses and happy Mondays and soup dragons. And, you know, the rave culture starts to take off. But then you're, you sort of, as a band, got together around that time when indie had moved on a bit, wasn't it? And you... and the, Yes. And being in the UK, we were really excited by, you know, Huskadoo and, you know, Sonic Youth and Big Black and the butthole surface. So were you kind of in that early 80s period, were you kind of very familiar with that, the jingly jangly sound of C86 and, and the Smiths and people like that? Um, at when First Avenue used to, because First Avenue, the infamous rock club, the best rock club in the world, um, is just like a mile and a half from my house and uh, it used to be called uh, Sam's and or Uncle Sam's then it was Sam's and it was the Danceteria or no Sam's the Danceteria then it was First Avenue but they used to have like the Smiths and all of those jingly jangly bands that played and stuff but I guess I probably I went to go see them only because I went there seven nights a week and so, but it was nothing that ever blew my skirt up. I was a rocker. Yeah. And so I liked, I liked, I liked anything that was danceable or rock or punk rock, or I just really, just yesterday I was at a friend's place and we were talking about the Smiths and I just kind of, my nose just automatically, when I hear their name, I just kind of go, uh, just too whiny. I just don't like whiny music. I yeah. like, I like kahunas. I like the kahunas. Give them to me. 
So did you did you sort of because the other thing that we did well in the 70s and, and then into the 80s was was people like Motorhead. Did you sort of go, oh, that's oh. what Motorhead. We... Motorhead, that's my that's my rock. That's what that is my rock, and that's where I stood with my with my spear. I right in the front row. I have horrible tinnitus. Um, I'm sure it has a lot to do with playing drums, but you know, Motorhead shows, Sonic Youth shows, touring with My Bloody Valentine and Dinosaur Jr. All, I mean, um, I probably talk really loud because I have such horrible tinnitus. I can't, I need to hear myself to talk or hear other people. But uh, yeah, those are kind of my, that's that's what I just, I really loved, you know, um, was that, yeah. like that. Yeah. I know, it was, it was kind of a, a good, I mean, it was kind of interesting because I did an interview with Fast Eddie and he, you know, I mean, being in, in a sort of band like that doesn't last long, really, because the intensity and and then they had that whole experience with, um, well, they had girls school. They did that duet, which was good. But then then they did that thing with Wendy O. Williams. And I think Fast Eddie was not happy with that kind of experience. Yeah. And, you know, it all went bad in Canada, which was kind of one of those places. So when, so, so around the 87 period, which I still put to, as one of the best years of music, because the release, releases of that year are just phenomenal. Like you had Husker do the Warehouse album, you had Prince, Actually, they're all from Minneapolis. Aren't they? <laughs> they are, aren't they? Minneapolis <laughs> hotspot that the world they probably know about the bands, but they don't really realize how Minneapolis is such. It you could go to the West Coast and you could get the bands, you know, like X and all those early, you know, that which is phenomenal and great, you know, all those things that were happening out there. You know, there was there was the Salvation Army. They were kind of a little. They were kind of you know. But I, 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 I liked them. They played here, you know, but you had like Black Flag and, you, you know, you had uh, Jello Biafra, you had all of that, so the Dead Kennedys. And then you go out to the East Coast and then you have that, that sound of the East Coast kind of rock and roll, more kind of noise and art uh, music, you know, in a way, but, and loved that. But Minneapolis was just kind of had its own thing. And I do give credit to the winters. They're so severe here. The only thing you can do is make music because if you don't, you're just gonna probably jump off the top of your house. Right. <laughs> because it's just so cold and it's so horrible and it's just dark and it's cold. So people are like, oh my God, how can I save myself? And so people just started right. starting bands, started writing music, write songs. And you know, you have all those months to really concentrate on that because you have no option but to be inside unless you love skiing. That's tough, isn't it? It is tough. But, you know, so I give the winter credit and we have just come out, you know, Soul, Soul Asylum, which was Loud Fast Rules, you know, we've all, a lot of people have really come a, a long way out of Minneapolis. It's a hotbed of, hotbed of hotness for music, I think, my personal. Yes. Well, well, it's interesting because I, you know, just briefly, I mean, I remember once you know, like you get that Manchester sound, obviously you had the Smiths, but you also had Joy Division, you know, and you think, God, you couldn't make Joy Division music, you know, in West Coast America, could you? But I remember once doing a road trip when we were, we'd gone to 
I don't know, Arizona and, and New Mexico. And we were driving and you listen to music and you suddenly go, oh yeah, I can really, I can understand why you'd listen to the Eagles at this point. I wouldn't be listening to, <laughs> I wouldn't be listening to Joy Division, you know, while looking at this amazing hot landscape in shorts. But, you know, Joy Division in wintertime is just like, yes, that, you get it, Manchester, that, that grimness, you know, the same with all those noise bands like My Bloody Valentine. So how did the, the, the three of you form um, Babes in Toyland? Um, well, I was living in Minneapolis. Kat had moved here. I don't know really exactly how she ended up here, even till today. I still don't really know the story, really, because she had a lot of different stories. But um, And uh, she ended up here, and she just ran around in the same circle as myself. And then after a while, we ended up at the same barbecue at a friend's house. And then she finally talked to me. Um, I'd always say hi to her. Yeah, but she was very kind of recluse and she was she also was kind of an not kind of she was an addict and so she just was always off in the corner and doing her deal and uh we started talking and so we she's like oh do you do you want to play in a band and I go well I have a drum kit but I've never played and so we, we just got together and it just kind of went from there yes and, well, that's that was, that's quite impressive, yeah. actually, to sort of. Uh, but then, but you, you, she wasn't a taught guitarist. But you were you had you been practicing and and sort of learning um, the kit. Um, she had already been in a band. She was in a band called the. Uh, I think it was with um, Jennifer Finch from L Seven. I think maybe I uh, maybe Courtney was in it and Cat. I can't remember who all was in it, but on the when they were up in either I think maybe they were in San Francisco. Yeah. They all played either San Francisco or Oregon, Portland, Oregon. It was one of those, and they all played together. Um, and then she came here, so she had already been in a band. Uh, I had never played, and so I just started playing drums along with her guitar, and that's what happened. Because <laughs> so, a few years later, or probably very soon after that, there was a band called Silverfish from North London. And they, you know, the first time I saw them was supporting My Bloody Valentine. And, and I think they were all very much people who had never been in a band or had even played music. But they sort of made a sound and, and they, for five years they managed to get it together. So, you know, it, do, it does happen, doesn't it? So did, what, did you feel like you were on a sort of a, a wave of kind of excitement, on a mission to say, to, to, to be, to, to create something? Um, yes, because uh, I never had so much fun as to have a friend come over. I had my drum kit set up in the basement and we would just, we I honestly got together probably five, six nights a week for months. And we just started playing and playing. And I just, I woke up in the morning just thinking about how much fun I was going to have later on in the day playing my drums with my new friend, Kat, yes. you know? And so that's how it rolled. And uh, I don't really think that we ever, I don't, I never expected to get out of the basement. You know, I was just kind of like, I just had fun playing the drums with this new friend, you know, that played the guitar. Um, I really didn't know if we would ever play a show that wasn't it would have been great but I don't think that was really anything that we were I wasn't going okay we got to write some songs so we can play a show I don't think that was ever said yeah it just but I also tour managed Silverfish in the United States when they came here so that 
Oh, so you met yes. Stuart, Stuart on drums, who... Yes, of course, yeah. I was quite friendly with him, you know, when, when oh. I first met him, you know, when, when they were literally, yeah. had just put out that first 12-inch, you know, um, EP, which I think something like On the Motorway and Dolly Parton was a song that yeah. they did and, and various ones like that. And I remember him just saying, well, I'm not a drummer, but I've just got a few, few things I hear and, <laughs> and some sort of fire hydrant that he would smack as well and it's like yeah. you make a great sound and fuzzes on guitar and then you get less yeah. vocals it's like brilliant you know and they did develop yeah. quite a bit really so that was quite interesting actually so yes good old so I did. yeah i got to i got to tour manage them i was friends with them and they're like can you can you tour manage us in the states i was like oh hell yeah so that was pretty, that was really fun. That was great. And I just saw Leslie uh, last year because she was here with Pig Face. And that was, that probably is one of the best shows that I have seen in a really long time. Um, I love Pig Face, but this last show where there was so much energy and it was so great, I still think about it and I still get goosebumps. It really was absolutely phenomenal with uh, Mary. Mary Biker, you know, Martin Adkins. Um, there were just there were just so many people and it was just so great. And Ash. Yes. Um, well it's it yeah. is amazing because I did an interview with Martin and yeah, I just couldn't believe how he gets that all together. That is Martin Atkins, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and I yeah. I love him too. He's in Chicago, so we we've been friends for many years also. With Chris Connolly, isn't it? As well. And Chris, yeah. Chris has done it on and off, so has done Pig Face. They have such a rotating lineup. Yeah, because uh, he was in a very yeah. obscure um, Scottish band called, oh God, they did a few singles and then he, then he moved to America, which was quite amazing. So then, yeah, so so as as the decade, I mean, the one, the other thing that sort of then comes along is, is obviously the grunge movement that we were very excited because John Peel suddenly starts playing this compilation called the Sub Pop 100. You know, and he was playing about four or five tracks on that, and and the first, you know, Nirvana, Nirvana um, album, Bleach, came out, and and so, did you start to think actually this we could slightly we were in the right place at the right time because everyone I've ever interviewed says timing is everything, and I've, I remember yeah. a few people said we were two years too early for punk, you know, Richard Strange from. Um, his band, which I can't remember now. Um, but he said, you know, we were there and we, we were just in 1975, but all the punk bands came to see us and then they, they you know, created punk, but we, we were just, we'd passed up moments. So you, did you feel like you were starting to be on that sort of cultural zeitgeist? Um, I guess we didn't really think about it, but we really got caught a lot of ground because um, <clears throat> Sonic Youth asked us to go to Europe with them. And so we had only been playing for a couple of years at that point, And that was our first time to Europe. And that just really caught, caught our, our, our dresses were caught on fire at that point, to say the least. And then that's where it kind of, that's where we just really started just going, oh my God, we, we turned here with Sonic Youth. And then it would just kind of put a fire under our britches and we just kept going and it gave us more of a more, you know, just a drive where we just kept going and, gained speed. Um, and it also did help uh, before I was in Babes in Toyland, I was pretty much the ambassador to uh, the music, to the musicians in Minneapolis, to music and people traveling and from all over the country or Europe. 
and every band uh, that would come to town would stay at my house. Right. And I'd them and they'd stay with me and I'd meet them and they'd stay with me. So when I started playing music and we were ready to go on the road, there were other people that were, I already knew and they're just like, oh, you should play with us or oh, you should stay at our house. So it was just kind of like, it was payback time and it really helped a lot. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know um, if we could have, <clears throat> we I, I, we could have done it, but it, and not that it was simple, it was still really tough, but it was easier because um, of the path that was paved of me helping out every, every mother and father in the country uh, when they were on tour and putting them up and getting them shows. I was also did a, I was a promoter. I brought a um, minor threat to town. The only time they ever came to Minneapolis wow. um, when I was, when I was 21, I rented a hall and got them to come here. And so I, I did a lot of different things. I had a record label um, for a little while. And, um, well, wow. because, because, because there was definitely, you know, being this, you know, indie kid who was still kind of just obsessed. So we sort of got that Sonic Youth and there was, was probably about 80 something. Oh, I don't know. Day, Daydream Nation came out and then Goo came out, didn't it? Around that time, you know, everything Sonic Youth did, Sonic Youth did was just kind of like, you, you know, a bit like Prince and Sign of the Times. It was one of those, my God, you just had to get that album. You waited for it. And they said, it's out next week. And you just went and bought it. And it was brilliant. You know, it was kind of yeah. genius. But at the same time, you, you know, you had all those other bands and and like L7 and um, Band of Susan and the Lunar Chicks and Bikini Kill. And then you had, you know, like Silverfish in this country and My Bloody Valentine. So there was definitely that kind of excitement and movement. So when you got your the, el- the first album together, did you... Was it quite a difficult process of, of getting the material or was that quite, did it all come together quite easily? I think it, if I can remember correctly, I think it was, a, it came together kind of easy because we, Kat and I worked really hard at, um, and then we had Michelle in the band um, at rehearsing. We just really loved it. And I think we just kind of worked together super well. And I, and because I had never played drums, um, I just, it was, instead of already having something in my background where I, I, I don't know, I was fresh and new and eager. And so it was just, it was just really fun. And then a local label, Twin Tone Records, <clears throat> who put out, you know, like the first solo song, first replacements, all that stuff. They were, they're like, they were just on the road for me, a few blocks. And yes. uh so that so that really helped a lot. Um, and then Tim Carr, who lived in New York, saw us at a club in New York City, and then he's the one that got us to get uh, signed us on to uh, Warner Brothers Reprise. Right. Like, or I I don't even know. I think that was our even our second record. So yeah. we only had I think we only had one record on on Twin on Twin Tone. Um, I'm not very good with all of that stuff because. But did you, did you, did you have a kind of a, a ability or a moment to sort of sit down and find, you know, to think, God, this is all happening very quickly? Or, or is it the case that you, you don't have any expectations of being in the band and suddenly it's all happening and before you know it, you're on this crazy trip, you know, and you're thinking, wow, we need to, sometime, we need to have some conversations about how we're managing it or does that never happen in a band? Never happened. It didn't happen with us. It was kind of... Um, it was kind of, I had already, like I said, I had already 
been a promoter. I had already managed a couple bands. I managed a band in Minneapolis, an early punk band called um, called uh, Red Meat. There was Red Red Meat from Chicago years down the road, but it was Red Meat, their punk rock band from Minneapolis. Um, and also a band called Final Conflict that Bob Mould produced their record. Mm. Um, and then I worked with this band Run Westy Run. I had the record label. I had put up all these bands. So And I just kind of already kind of understood and knew how it worked. So I kind of took the reins and I look at it now and I go, how in the hell did I do all of that and drum (laughs) and, and drive and set all the equipment up and the gear and get paid, get the girls, the drunken girls into our vehicle to get to a place to sleep and get them up in the morning to get to the next destiny. It's like, you see this gray? Yes. That was well earned. I just go, people think it's a blonde streak. I'm like, no, it's gray. I earned it. <laughs> was it. Was it the case then? Were you the person who were a little bit more on it and the other yes. two were just like having a trip? Yes. And it was fine because you know what? Um, I'm Sagittarius and I can do things. And I'm the, also the oldest of three children. And I was just always the responsible one. And it just, it, it really didn't bother me. And I'm, it was basically, if we're going to do it, I'm going to do it because I'm going to do it right. And I'm going to, and I'm going to be able to communicate with the women, uh, you know, with my bandmates and I'm going to be able to know what's going on. I need to know, I don't want someone else going around and doing stuff and then not communicating with us. We just, were not good with that. Kat's also Sagittarius. So we we worked really well together. Um, Sagittarians have created the creative ones. Um, we have wings on our heels, so touring was excellent for us. Um, it was it. We just uh, we were just really best friends and sisters, and it just worked well. And it we just went with it. Where there was no there was no like thinking. Okay, here's our next. Here's our next make a list of what our next plans were because we had, it was just such a whirlwind that we couldn't even make plans because it was just kind of like, Oh, we're invited to do Lollapalooza. Oh, we're going to Europe with Sonic Youth. We're, you know, I mean, I'm not, but we just had a lot of different options going on tour with, you know, faith no more going on tour with, um, white zombie and Caius, um, going on, you know, doing all of these different things. It was just so, so, so fun. And we yeah. just went with it, you know, well, and then we did a lot of our own tours. Yeah. And and the one thing that um, I didn't realise this until doing various interviews, and, th- and that was with Lindy from The Go-Betweens and Patty from Hole. And, and then I'd watched this documentary by The Wedding Present when they were doing George Best. And you are that drummer. And the one thing that sort of still makes drummers kind of to this day sort of shudder is the click track. How did you cope with things like the the, the production, the producer and the click track? I never used a click track. I, I never used one. And the reason for that is I just, I don't, I, I, I personally don't like perfection. I think perfection is kind of boring. I like things that are more free flowing and Kat and I had our own sound and I wasn't, I don't do click track. I'm just like a half, a 
half a beat behind her and that's just the way that I played and people brought that up and I didn't realize it until people would tell me they're like it's so cool how you're just like a half a beat all the time behind and that's what makes you sound the way that you sound differently besides your unique playing um you know it just kind of that's just I don't I'm not you know I just did this and so when we recorded with um with with Lee from Sonic Youth, with Lee Ronaldo. Yeah. I remember being in New York City and he wanted me to use a click track, either there or Pachyderm. Um, I can't remember which place it was. And I just said, no, I'm not using any click track. And that was that. Right. <laughs> be, be, because I know, I mean, you know, this, this I don't know, if you, if you get a chance, the Sonic Youth, not the Sonic Youth, the, the Wedding Present film is, is a good one. You know, it's just, if you like rock documentaries. And there was a real moment where, you know, the, the drummer, 30 years later still is kind of hasn't let go because I think he gets removed the producer gets removed it's all very messy at this kind of point within the film and it's all around the click track and then like I said Lindy from from the go-betweens had that experience where the producer said right you can have this without the click track with the professional musician or with her and you know if you want chart success and you know you need to have this and if you want you know you know and the, and the pressure was huge and then patty as well from hole as well had horrendous experience getting sort of removed from the sort of the album that was going to be so big and and somebody else comes in and you know it kind of destroys people so it's good that you managed to sort of navigate i that. said no <laughs> i just <laughs> i just said no i'm not using click track cat it was like hell no this is how we sound and this is how it is and we actually did some of the re- a lot of the recording was not tracks we just played it live because that's the way that we just yeah how we sounded we were just live and raw and we played together and if it wasn't really perfect we didn't really care because we just like that live raw energy sound and and i know that i i heard you say earlier the first albums were good and then you go to the second record and it just kind of i just think the First records are like way up here. And then the second record, it kind of starts going like this. And I just think the first records are best records for almost any band that I've liked because it's where they haven't recorded anything. They haven't done it. They're excited. They're fresh. They just, it's their, it's their truth. It's just everything coming out of here. Then by the second record, they've gotten a little taste of everything. They've gotten stuff under their belt. They, they want to get a little bit more serious. So they kind of try and polish it a little bit. And then they think, and then as it keeps going on, they think way too much into it. They spend three weeks on one song and then the, it's just ruined. Yeah. It's just, so that's why I think first records are the best because they're the freshest, they're the rawest, and they're kind of, they're like naive and you just really are just like, this is what, you know, this is what it is. And is I, it's, but, yeah. But there must have been kind of amazing sort of getting these tools to come around Europe and Britain and stuff like that. And also John Peel, a John Peel play and session, because because one thing that I, I sort of realized, and, and that's why I think me and a lot of people my age don't really know how it works anymore, because you had the gatekeepers back then, you know, you had these kind of DJs who who had sort of a certain amount of influence, even though at the time, you know, John Peel was like, his listening figures were tiny compared to the other people. But then you look and you think, actually, they're still quite impressive. And the people who listen to his show, like me, would record them on our TDK D90 cassette. So that was kind of, so when you had those kind of indie nights at the local 
town city, you'd get 150, 200 people who would just turn up because they'd heard it on John Peel and for two pound or three pound, you'd think, well, there's three bands playing, I'm gonna go and see it. So you had that kind of network and then you had the music press, like we had the NME, Melody Maker, Sounds, Record Mirror. And again, you know, a good review in that would give you, you know, ability to go and do a bit of a tour around the country. So that was good. But you also got a John Peel session, didn't you? Quite quickly, as well as his kind of, kind of, um, I don't know, enthusiasm, because he just loved the band, didn't he? He did, and he was just um, an amazing gentleman. Um, his passion, I try and, I, you know, I've said in interviews before, I said, you know, John Peel did more for music in this world than any politician, king or queen have ever done in the history of the world. I mean, you know, he just, he, he was just the most powerful person in music for any human being that has lived in our time. It's kind of, you know, he was, he was the David Bowie. I mean, he was even brighter than the David Bowie of the DJC. I mean, he just was the ultimate greatest. Yes. And for us to be able to listen to his words of wisdom and the, his, his the needle getting put, you know, every played stuff on, on the record <laughs> and listening to that, you know, I mean, there's not, there's no relationship that we'll ever have that is great as, as us and him, even if you never met him. You know, it's just the most, most beautiful, sensuous, amazing relationship you can ever have. I mean, if you really love music, it, it was, and so when we got, when we went to Europe and then when we um, got to do appeal session, we actually, I think we ended up doing at least four of them um, yes. at the end of the day. But he introduced us at Reading Festival, and that was really wonderfully great. Um, I think we have it on one, I think it might be an intro, I don't know, um, for one of our, on one of our songs, maybe. Um, either it's that or, I don't know. But uh, he, after the show, after we performed, he interviewed us right after that, because he had a, a little mobile at, at Reading, yeah. and he interviewed us, and he was choking up, and I had already known him. I'd spent some time with him and stuff, so he was like my friend, you know, and I was very comfortable with him, and he, you know, and he was just not intimidating and just so wonderful. You just ugh, love yes. him. But he, you, said, he said, what he had said was, I, have, I said, thank you so much for introducing us, and he said, I'll have to tell you, he said, I've cried two times in my life, over music and it was the first time I heard teenage kicks I was on the a1a or the m1 or something I heard it on the radio and he said I had to pull over to the side of the road because it made me cry and he said and to introducing you is the second time I've ever cried and so he, he had confessed that he had cried after he introduced us at Reading Festival he he said he was all choked up and had to go to the and watch us from the side of the stage but I just oh, and so that is an amazing yeah. story then, it, it is. <laughs> you know, but it's it's like moments like that you just think you need to hang on to, don't you? Desperately. I I do. I need to actually. I need to find that that show of his. I mean, I'm sure it's probably in the archive somewhere. You know, of yes. him interviewing us after Reading Festival and God, him I saying, so. saying I'm that. Have a look at that because um yeah you had that was Del Griffith who who probably produced yeah. at that time yeah. but then a couple of years later there was a compilation that came out that I thought was fantastic and I must admit when I because when I was growing up 
I must admit, my mum used to have Radio 2 on, which was kind of quite soft pop. And um, there was a band that I absolutely loved, and people thought I was being ironic, but I wasn't, was The Carpenters. And obviously, <laughs> you feature on one of the greatest compilations of all time. Um, if I were a carpenter, which was, you know, because you think, oh, this could be a bit cheesy. And you think, God, oh, this is really good, because everyone puts so much into it, don't they? Yeah. You know, I get goosebumps just, just now. I just get goosebumps th thinking about it. <laughs> yes. it. It's quite a special compilation, isn't it? And so, yes. yeah, so you go for calling occupants. Um, mm -hmm. Yes. Was, was, did you get a choice of what songs you could do? Or, or were you like, actually, you know, we, we've been going through them and, and these are the bands and these are the ones that are left? Um, we, I think, were the second, we were the second band approached for it. And we picked Superstar, and they're like, you can't do Superstar. Sonic Youth is doing Superstar. And I was like, ah, of course they are, you know? So then I thought, I really love the idea of aliens, UFOs, calling occupants, the really weird, the weirdness of it, the voices. It's such a weird, weird song. So we picked that one. My two bandmates had never heard of the song and I already liked it because I loved the Carpenters and it was originally a Klaatu cover from uh, Canada. It was a band from Canada who originally did that song. And then the Carpenters covered it. And so I'm like, well, I'll sing it because I already know the song. It's yes. weird. And so I sang it and we did, I ended up doing an interview with someone um, at Rolling Stone magazine about when that came out and they said that they had spoke with Richard Carpenter and he said that that was his favorite song of, of the compilation and I was like yeah I did oh, it yes did it. <laughs> well yeah I just thought you know because because I know I know you didn't because I haven't heard that and loved the lyrics of the Carpenters I think you know from rainy days and Mondays to you know sing and yeah. all those songs lyrically they're amazing i can see why i then got into people like joy division and the smiths because it's yes. all about yeah. kind of, <laughs> it's a it, they're so sensitive aren't they yes um that was another thing my mother played a lot of on our console stereo was the carpenters yeah so i knew i know all the words to every carpenter song so that's you know that was another that was another one i mean now i hear names i'm like oh that was you know um, we, I, my mom and I would sing it together. We'd sit in the living room and sing together. Like, you know, when I was a very young child and, uh, you know, so that, that's pretty cool. So, too. so fast forward, because obviously your third album, which was coming out in 95, you know, the music scene had changed again and, and, you know, like the grunge period had slightly moved. And then we had Britpop in this country. God knows what was happening in America. Um, there must have been something exciting happening. But did you, when you were recording your third album, did there, was there a feeling that things were getting quite tricky at that stage? Which, what is the third album? Them <laughs> Sisters. Thank you. I've never listened to us. I don't, I'm, I, I go in the studio, I record, and then it goes into a, a, a bin somewhere. And I, I've never listened to us. I've never... I've never read any articles. Um, I've never read any books about yes. Babes in Toyland. I'm, I'm that person. So I don't know. I know our first album was, our first record, our first record was Spanking Machine. That's and I one. think that's all I know. Um, 
just because that's all I know. And I think, I Neil, I think Neil Young was quite the same. I think, you know, when, once he'd done it, it was like it was yep. gone. Yep. Like, yep. And so, uh, did you say Nemesis Sisters? Yes. Okay. Um, I, you know, I don't even really remember. I don't remember where, I, I don't even remember where we recorded it or who we recorded it with. Is that the one we did with Lee Ronaldo? And no? Um, no, this was done with Tim Mack on Reed. Oh, Tim Mack. In, oh, okay. And it was done in, uh, yeah, Minneapolis. Okay, and, yeah. And Rep Studios. Okay, and Amphetamine Reptile Records. That's uh, Tom Hazemeyer. He put out, uh, you know, he's the one that put out Hel Helmet's first record. Uh, Melvin, he does all the Melvin stuff now, and he's amazing. He's a pretty good friend of mine. Um, but I don't remember, to be honest, I don't remember a whole lot about that. Um, so, and Tim Mack lived in my house for a while. I own a duplex. Um, but I guess I don't really remember much about it at all. Yes. And I don't remember where we were at, but I know that we were, you know, we were probably touring and at that, you know, we were still touring a lot. We were going to Europe a lot, um, which I loved. We were going a lot to like the Asian Rim, to Australia, Japan, New Zealand, Hawaii. Um, that was a really, those were fun trips because you could break it up by landing in Hawaii and then doing that and then going to New Zealand and, and Japan. And so it kind of would break up that like 17,000 hour flight um, and then going to these new countries that were just wonderful. Yes. And, uh, so, you know, I think I remember just touring and meeting new friends and seeing old friends and just having the times of our life just playing rock and roll and, and getting paid for it and traveling. That's my, that's a dream come true for me. Well, so then, then. there you go. So did, I mean, because the, the, with the narrative, does the band then, is that the kind of, to, to quote Jim Morrison, the kind of end for, for sort of chapter one? Um, I, I, well, you know, we, then we started going through bass players because Michelle quit and then there was Maureen and then, and then we had a couple others and Michelle came back and then and then when we did the reunion most recently it was Maureen again for a little while of it and then we ended with a different bass player because it seems that the bass players always Kat and I just worked so well together and it was just so fun and the bass players just never seemed to be that happy I don't really know what the deal was with that but it was just Drake City USA uh, most of the time doesn't mean that I disliked them it just meant that it was, or they just didn't have it in them, or there were there there was problems with a couple of them, obviously, um, or else some of them would have kept playing with us. But it just, you know, Cat and I basically were on the same page. It's kind of like if we aren't having fun with you, we can't you can't be around because yeah. this is this isn't about gloom and doom and sadness. No, you miss your boyfriend or your girlfriend, or oh, you wish that we were staying in motels every single night, or whatever or oh you know whatever your problem is we just want we're just going on tour and we're having fun and if you yeah. can't deal with it move along little move along little doggy <laughs> so that's kind of was the bottom line with yeah with that you know it wasn't like you know we just we there was zero tolerance for cat and i are like we're having fun and if you were you're not having fun anymore you know you gotta you gotta go move along so we just always tried to make it so it was fun. And another thing was we didn't really care 
how great the bass player was because I could always learn. It was yeah. if we were if we were compatible. Like that was actually more important to us was having fun with the person. Like just making sure that we were a three, you know, a family of three, you know. And if and if that didn't work out, that was usually when you know when it was kind of like, all right, ciao, Bella. So, I <laughs> mean, you, it really, yeah. Did you find that the, in the, the latter period, you know, from like 2014 to the kind of almost the current day, did that feel like being in the band was quite a different vibe to these early kind of exciting, slightly naive, but amazingly enthusiastic period? Did it feel a bit like more of a job to, to keep it going, but you had the opportunity because, you know, you had, festivals and tours and that kind of trip and you think well actually this is kind of this is what I can do and I kind of enjoy it but it's not quite the same as making all those sort of music and going in the studio and doing stuff. Um, I thought it was just as exciting and and honestly I think that Kat and I were even better and tighter and stronger. I really I mean that was my feeling and I think Kat too and so we were really happy. I mean we would Sometimes we would just cry tears of joy because it was just so fun to do it again. And we had the opportunity and it was just so great. You know, there was, there was a little pressure because we had really big shoes to fill, you know, it's like we, they asked us to be in Riot Fest and we had to go do these big things and do all this stuff. But um, it, we actually still just made it as fun as we could. And it it was it really was really really great because um, because I did an interview it was it was a, it was a band called Lush I don't know if you can remember Lush from the we Lush. toured with them also so they they sort of do their business and then unfortunately I think um, the drummer you know killed yes. himself and that was the end of the band and then they get some big offers to tour you know do various big festivals Coachella in America and then there's a massive problem because they can't go and they've all given up their day jobs and their lives because they sort of quit music and they then do this tour and it all ends really badly with the bass player leaving and people being punched and then having to go to lawyers and solicitors and all that kind of stuff and it you know it kind of like you know they'll never reform again <laughs> but um so I just wonder what it can be like sometimes when you when you realize that you've got a bit older and a bit wiser but there's kind of a few more ten you know whether you can allow those tensions to move on you know because I remember when the police you know got together again and they 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 got massive money but they everyone was enjoying it apart from you know like the drummer Stuart and Sting so they had to have band therapy and apparently they kind of managed to get through the rest of the tour after band therapy but you know they did sort of say you know what was the problem between those two members and there was only three in the band so there was a lot of problems but you know I just wondered if if we you know your sort of experience with bass players sometimes Maybe you think, God, this wasn't like the early days where we just did things and everyone was happy and we went in the studio and we did, oh, here's another album. It was just a little bit more like, blimey, this is quite hard, isn't it? Um, we did have a little, a little tough time. Um, well, first I'll say Kat, with her addiction over decades, just really started taking a toll on her. Like before she was a functioning addict, and I always dealt with it and all that, but this last bout that we did um, up till a couple a couple years ago, um, for about four, did we do it for four years? A reunion, four or five years? Um, yeah, like four years. Uh, 
she wasn't as functional. She could get on stage, she could play, it was super great, but the downtime was very, it was, it, that, it was very, very tough. And then um, it was very tough with our bass player too. So there was a lot of things going on. Um, and, but we just made it work because you just have to, you just have to embrace stuff sometimes, you know, and just be like, okay, that's where they're at right now. So they need to stay in bed all day long until the show to be able to perform, you know, before it'd be like, get the, get the F out of bed and be a human being, you know, but it's like, well, if we're going to keep doing this, we're going to have to let her stay up all night and, or, you know, sleep in bed all day or hide out to do her drugs and then, you know, do what she's doing because she's really full blown, um, deep, you know, and then, you know, everyone had, I'm not perfect. I have my own problems too, but it got, it got pretty difficult. Um, but we had a really amazing gentleman that was our sound man and our um, tour manager named Rubes. And he was, he's so positive. He's so excellent. So wonderful that he really kind of just, you just kind of, when you have your focus on something else, that's really great. It's okay for that other stuff to be happening because then you can just kind of, you have this thing where you're not just sitting there idling, being angry, you know, or being hurt or being like, I still have to deal with this. I mean, I still felt that. I'm like, I can't believe after 32 years, I'm still dealing with this BS, you know? It's like, holy crap, just grow up for for Christ's sake, you know? But, you know, it just, uh, so now it's non-functioning. That's why we were supposed to do, um, I booked us three shows during the Super Bowl, which was going to be here two years ago. And we had really, I booked us some really great shows. It was going to be excellent. Um, and they had to be canceled because Kat couldn't even walk from her house out to the garage where we were rehearsing because she just, she couldn't. And so it was kind of that thing where it's like, all right, well, this is the end. This is, this is the end for us. And we, you know, before I said, oh, we're never going to play again. And then we did that reunion thing. Right now we are, we will never play again. There's no, I mean, there's not even a possible physical way that we can. So yes. it's, it's coming, did that, it's did that take a lot of emotional kind of for your part, kind of honesty to say that door has really closed because there yeah. must've been moments where you kept thinking that door's a bit open and we can still do mm -hmm. it. But did that feel like actually this is, this really is the end and I need yeah. to move on? Yeah, it's really, it's really sad. Um, but then instead of thinking of it that way, I'm like, damn, I did like the, I, if I died tomorrow, I'd be like, well, I freaking lived the greatest life. I met the greatest people. I experienced the greatest things. I did things that were so amazing and wonderful. And I have to embrace that and move forward, you know, yes. have no, of course I have a couple regrets or a couple of things, you know, but I mean, I really have just let go. You you just get older and you just go, that was excellent. You know, I am so fortunate. I'm so lucky. I'm so grateful. Worked really, really hard. It wasn't given to us on a silver platter and especially being women, we had to work two times harder. It, um, we can go write a whole book about that, yeah. but we really worked really, really hard and we did something and I am really proud and happy for all of that yeah. so it's just as sad how it how it ended and I I haven't even t spoke with Kat for probably about nine months 
she lives right by me somewhere as far as I know. I don't, I, I mean, I don't know. I haven't spoke with her, but um, the last time I talked to her, she's either living about three blocks from me or about seven blocks from me. She has two different places she goes to and I haven't seen her or talked to her. So, and it's just how it has to be, right? You know. Yeah. And when you see films, I mean, I don't know if you saw the film by Patty, you know, hits hits so hard and you saw the way she dealt with it. Does did that sort of bring, you know, with age and sort of experience and certain amount of wisdom, did that sort of resonate quite a bit if you if you did see the film and read the book? I have not seen the film and I really need to. Um I'm terrible with all of that stuff. And now I did get an account if it's on like Hulu or Xfinity or I pay for it now. Um, I'm always so dang busy that I just, I've never owned a TV. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I'm just a weirdo. I don't watch stuff. I don't sit still long enough to watch anything. I do love documentaries and independent films. So that's what I'm into. And it is on my, it's in, it's on my list of to watch for sure, yes. because Patty is a dear friend and I really adore her and I go, you know, I go out to LA and I, I get a hold of her and I go to breakfast with her or something, but I do really need to see that. That's something that I have to see. Um, but, you know, it's uh, when you, and I'm not saying, oh, Kat's so much, I'm so much better than her because I'm not an addict and I've got, you know, my this, my shit together and all this. I I do not totally have my shit together. I'm going to go to a doctor because I've been through a lot the past few weeks. Um, but, you know, I'm grateful. And I tell Kat that I'm like, I'm not an addict and I'm not better than you. I'm really sorry that you are. I feel terrible. And I wish I tried helping you for over 30 years and there's nothing I can do. And at this point, the only thing I can do is just let go because until you want to do something, but she's never wanted to. And I just have to, I just have to let it be that. And it's really sad and it breaks my heart, you know, but it's, I had to do it for myself. I just, I can't, I can't save anyone anymore. And um, it took a huge toll on me for a really long time. So well, I always remember listening because I love Lemmy's, Lemmy's uh, interviews and he really hates those kind of heavy drugs, doesn't he? He really, uh-huh. he didn't, you know, he refused to have anything to do with anybody around him. I think it's because he lost so many friends in the early days. Yep. Me too. Like, I'm, I'm not, you know, there's certain things you can do, but there's certain things is just not going to happen because emotionally, I think he just got broken by it. Just seeing so many people die. So it was like, yeah, Uncle Lemmy, we need to listen to Lemmy, don't we? He's the man. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. God. Even the last album they did was amazing. So what would you, just lastly, what would you say to her, if you could, just, a, you know, like that 18 year old self, like if you, if you thought, God, there's that, that kind of wisdom that you've, you know, developed or well, not developed but you know you, you've you know you with experience and we survive you know you think god if I could tell my 18 year old self something this would be it even if they didn't want to listen but there was just a few little things of just like oh yeah that would have been handy I I don't I mean I, I just you always go with your intuition always no matter what it is I don't know if it's in life or with music or whatever your decisions are your intuition, your gut tells you it's the only thing that really can't be taken away from us. Our life can be taken away from us. Our house can be taken away from us. Our, 
our lover can be taken away from us. There's so many things, but our intuition is really the thing that you need to go with and you need to be in tune with it. Go with your intuition and also just don't give up because it's, if you give up, you aren't going to find out if you can ever do it. Just keep trying. You know, there's a point maybe where you hit a wall and you're like, I can't do it. Try something else. Do what feels more comfortable. Um, but don't, don't give up. And also don't worry about what other people think. Do not, don't go, oh man, I don't really like this song. I don't know if this crowd will like this song. And it's like, you don't know. You don't know anybody. We're all individuals. Maybe 13 million people will love it and 20 million will hate it. But that 13 million, it's worth it. I mean, I'm just, you know, saying number. But you just, you can't please everybody. And you just do what you love. And if you love it and you have that passion and you have that twinkle in your eye and it is real and it is real. Because people know the difference between, you know, some people you just see bands and you're just like oh god you watch me and you go they are so up there for the wrong reason mm. you know you can you can see it and you can feel it they just they want to be in a band they want to be famous whatever you know famous to them might mean popular you know and a lot of money to me famous is living your life um the way that you want to being successful and doing what how you want to live your life that to me is success and bring, mm. but just but just do it do what feels good and what makes you happy and there will be people that will be behind you because it is genuine and there are a lot of people out there that's all that they beg for from anybody is truth and and genuine you know and uniqueness and all of that so don't worry about what other people think just do it and i'll tell you you'll live a really happy life there's a lot of times I compromised and I really bummed me out. And so you just gotta, gotta go with it. Yes. Well, God, I have to say that some, it's been fantastic to speak to you. And it's great that you know, there's so many little things that, you know, like those little references about other bands and also John Peel and Richard Carpenter. Yes. I mean, Jesus. I mean, yes. It, it's, it's enough to make you sleep well at night, though, you know, there might be other issues in the world. But I mean, it's kind of nice that when you kind of remind yourself and think, Oh, John Peel said those things, and this guy, you know, yeah. you know, he is—he is so the man, wasn't he? Really, I do think he—he he really was. He was kind of, and his kind of history in music, kind because of, in the sixties he did something called the Perfume Garden, which was kind of pirate radio on Radio Caroline, and he, you know, he was the first person who played all that stuff from the psychedelic, you know, from the Hendrix Doors, Captain Beefheart, you know, no one else was going to play it, and and you know, and obviously the Beatles and Sergeant Pepper, but you know, he did. He was always looking for that other thing, and and every time he changed, you know, his old fans were like, "God, punk! You can't play punk." But he's like, "Yeah, but the Ramones, this is the damn, this is amazing." And then you know, early rap music, and then world music like the Bundu Boys or the Four Brothers, and you know, and then all the stuff that he was in, like that Sub Pop 100 compilation, and then. Uh -huh. It was a bit like, and, and each day, you know, as a fan, you know, we all have that kind of period where we really, you know, everything's about the music. And it's kind of difficult when the next thing comes along because you think, no, but I like the Smiths. But then you think, no, no, but this is also good. And, oh, no, this is also good. So to be honest, he was, he navigated my, my life a lot. Yep. Yep. And that I, is true. I, he even liked, him and I once went and saw, uh, I think it was Carcass and Extreme Noise Tour together. <laughs> so he liked that also. 
that was the only time I met him was at, in Ips Ipswich and it was extreme noise terror, um, napalm death and uh, oh, band. That's, that's who it was, it was napalm death. I was there with him. The Caribbean Center. Yeah, yes, <laughs> I was there with him. I went with him to that. Okay, show. oh well then. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> that was it, it was extreme noise terror and, and who, and who napalm, else? Napalm, I think it was napalm, napalm death. death. That was it. I kept yeah. thinking it was carcass. It was napalm death. That was it. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Like, oh god, that's John Peel. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, you know, but it was, it was kind of, yeah, it was great. Yeah. So when he played that, it was like ten seconds of noise, and think that's a bit weird, but I kind of enjoyed it, you know, because then it was like, <laughs> you know, then the the Bundu boys, and then some early, you know, Public Enemy, and you know, stuff like that. And it was just yeah. like, here you go. I've I've got the best indie music. I've got the best African music. I've got the best reggae. I've got the best rap. rap and I've gone through all the stuff. And this is what you like, you know, babes in Thailand. Yeah. It, it it all makes sense, doesn't it? You know, it's. Such <laughs> <a> little... <laughs> so, yeah. I just I just was going through a bunch of stuff, and I just found a uh, postcard that he sent me. So, I that I that I saved, and I was like, oh. So, I've yeah. got, I've got, I, I, he sent me something. Um, I don't know. I must have gone in. I, I think I wrote a what because he was giving some singles away, and his writing was very big, wasn't it? Yes, it was very. It was almost like he was writing each letter in a square in a rectangle. Yeah, it was just very rectangular. Very, and you know, it was so cool though. But yeah, I just that guy was great, and. Uh, Dale Griffith was really wonderful too. He did. He recorded us. Uh, oh, I think great. he I did almost all of our Peel sessions, and he was phenomenal also. And I really enjoyed working with him. Yeah, so, that's yeah. brilliant. Look, I better let you go. But thank you ever so much. And I, and when I put this out, I'll, I'll send you a link. But that's been amazing. Okay. Take care. Thank you. Oh, you're wonderful. Have a beautiful day. See you later. Take care. Okay. Bye bye. Bye bye. And that was me in conversation with Laurie Barbero from the Babes in Toyland. If you want to um, contact me for whatever reason, as long as it's nice and positive, you can on um, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Just do at C86show and I will be there. And also I've um, archived all these shows so you can find those on Spotify, iTunes and Podbean. So um, do check them out. If you've ever wanted to hear a conversation and an interview with somebody from the, especially the indie, 80s indie period, it's all there and much, much more. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.